at the time of this episode's original broadcast on May 4th, 2020, the world is in a rather strange state. More than 3 billion humans have spent nearly two solid months confined to their homes in an effort to slow the spread of a historically deadly pandemic. Make no mistake, compared to those who are tending to the sick or otherwise keeping civilization afloat, we who have been staying home are incredibly fortunate. That said, the boredom is starting to affect people. For instance, Dr. Daniel Reardon is an Australian astrophysicist who usually spends his days unraveling the mysteries of the cosmos' most powerful phenomena, like pulsars and gravity waves. In late March, he was admitted to the hospital with two extremely powerful neodymium magnets stuck up his nose. He started with the best of intentions. Reardon was attempting to build a device that would dissuade the user from touching their face in the name of hygiene. A necklace capable of detecting magnetic fields would sound an alarm upon the approach of bracelets containing powerful magnets. An interesting idea, but unfortunately, it did the exact opposite. Oh, I accidentally invented a necklace that buzzes continuously, unless you move your hand close to your face, he said in an interview with The Guardian. Slightly defeated, Reardon began idly playing with the magnets, attaching them first to his earlobes and then to his nostrils. That was when two of the magnets accidentally slipped far up his nose. He thought he might be able to pull the foreign objects out by using more magnets. I lost my grip, he said, and those two magnets ended up in my left nostril, while the other one was in my right. At this point, I ran out of magnets. Reardon's partner, who works at a hospital, was reportedly unable to stop laughing to assist. He then reached for a pair of pliers, but in the tug-of-war between the pliers and the magnets, the magnets won. Every time I brought the pliers close to my nose, my entire nose would shift toward the pliers. Then the pliers would stick to the magnet. It was a little bit painful at this point. The doctors at the hospital were able to remove the magnets from his head once they, too, stopped laughing. So, if you've ever suffered an embarrassing moment, take heart. It happens to the smartest among us. To be fair, those powerful magnets are a lot of fun to play with, even when you haven't been locked indoors for weeks. Let's take a closer look at what makes neodymium so attractive. You're listening to the Episodic Table of Elements, and I'm T.R. Appleton. Each episode, we take a look at the fascinating true stories behind one element on the periodic table. Today, we're getting all spun up about neodymium. Element 60 is a distinguished specimen because it has done 
what no other lanthanide has yet been able to do. It's kind of become a household name. Gadolinium, Dysprosium, Samarium, and even the twin sibling of today's subject are all likely to earn blank stares when mentioned to the layperson. But more often than not, Neodymium will be met with at least faint recognition. Oh yeah, those are the magnets, right? Indeed, Neodymium magnets are an essential part of practically every electronic device that we touch. We rely on them to store our digital data, to scan our bodies when diagnosing medical conditions, to speed across the countryside in levitating trains. Well, some countrysides, anyway. And that's without mentioning their ability to generate electricity or drive motors. If you've ever been surprised by the size of a mobile phone made in the year 2000 compared to one made in 2020, neodymium provides part of the explanation. Neodymium magnets pack a lot of power in a small package, and over time, scientists have discovered ways to make them even stronger. That means, for instance, more compact microphones, vibration motors, and autofocus lenses, which all go a long way toward making smaller phones. For all that, neodymium magnets didn't even exist 40 years ago. For a long time, there simply wasn't any need for them. But that changed practically overnight in May 1978. And one of the men responsible for that change was Mobutu Sese Seko the totalitarian dictator who ruled over the African nation of Zaire for over 30 bloody years. Before 1971 and after 1997, Zaire was known as Congo or the Democratic Republic of the Congo, respectively. By any name, the country's history is marred by generations of colonial oppression at the hands of the Belgian government. It's well outside the scope of this episode, but have you ever wondered why Belgium, a northern European country with a temperate climate, is world-renowned for its chocolate, a food made from the seeds of a tropical tree? The answer is not pleasant. Belgian rule came to an end in 1960, with the democratic election of the newly independent nation's first prime minister, Patrice Lumumba. He was an anti-colonial leader who espoused dignity, equality, and liberty, and sought to make his country a neutral state that took neither side in the Cold War. That really irritated some of the other players on the world stage, most notably Belgium and the United States. President Eisenhower ordered the CIA to assassinate Lumumba, which they planned to accomplish by lacing his toothpaste with poison. They never got the chance to try, though. Many different factions were vying for Lumumba's position, and in September 1960, it was seized by Lumumba's own army chief of staff, Joseph Desir Mobutu. He led a coup, 
and over the next several months, he established himself as the country's ultimate authority. He eventually gave himself a new name, Mobutu Sese Seko Nkuku Nbendu Wazabanga, meaning the all-powerful warrior who, because of his endurance and inflexible will to win, goes from conquest to conquest, leaving fire in his wake. Lumumba was imprisoned and later met an especially grisly fate. Western governments found this to be an equally satisfactory outcome. Mobutu had taken control of a land that was unbelievably rich in natural resources, which is at best a mixed blessing. Possessing the raw materials of civilization is highly valuable, so valuable that theft might appear more alluring than trade. We saw five centuries of that in Bolivia, all the way back in episode 3, Lithium. Rubber, timber, oil, diamonds, gold, tin, and copper are all abundant in Congo. So are radium and lime, and the uranium that fueled America's first atomic bombs came from a Congolese mine. But perhaps its most strategic resource is cobalt. In the 1970s, the most widely used magnets were made of an alloy of samarium and cobalt. Then, as now, Congo provided nearly two-thirds of the world's cobalt supply. In a roundabout way, the electronics industry across the globe was critically dependent on the mines in Zaire. Mobutu was happy to pull the minerals out of the ground as fast as other countries would buy them. And he made sure that all the profits were funneled directly to his personal friends. The people of Zaire lived in abject poverty, which Mobutu used to justify massive requests for foreign aid. Wealthier nations delivered that aid, and again, most of that money went straight to Mobutu and his cronies. While his citizens lacked essential resources, Mobutu built a $100 million palace in the jungle. Children labored in the mines, and protesters were tortured while the president traveled to Paris by supersonic jet for lavish shopping sprees. That kind of leadership tends to earn a lot of enemies, and Mobutu was surrounded by them from within his own country and without. In 1978, some of those enemies led an uprising in Kowezi, a medium-sized city that's home to many of those cobalt mines. Thousands of hostages were taken, Sniper bullets crossed paths with rocket fire, and over a dozen countries from every hemisphere were ensnared in the conflict. The outbreak was quickly quelled, and Mobutu emerged even stronger. But the minor metals market was traumatized. In less than a year, the price of cobalt rose from $10 per pound to more than 60 Corporations around the world shared a sudden epiphany that their supply lines were extremely fragile. They mainly explored two solutions to the problem. Finding new sources of cobalt, and finding new materials to replace cobalt. 
Junior research scientist Masato Sagawa had been assigned the latter task by his bosses at Fujitsu, and he learned all he could about magnetism, especially the cobalt samarium variety. Magnetism is about as complex a subject as Central African political history, but here's a simplification. Electrons have three intrinsic qualities. An electric charge, negative. A mass, very, very small. And finally, a property called spin. Electrons don't actually rotate on a central axis, like the Earth does, but the analogy is accurate enough for our purposes today. Electrons can spin in one of two ways, up or down. Usually, for each electron spinning up as it orbits an atom, there is another electron spinning down. The two are paired together, and their spins cancel out. It's kind of like how a proton's positive electric charge cancels out the electron's negative one. But some atoms have rogue electrons, which have no partner, which gives the atom an overall non-zero amount of spin. It basically turns the atom itself into a tiny magnet. The kind of magnets you can hold in your hand are made of a whole lot of atoms just like that, all pointing in the same direction working in unison to generate a much stronger magnetic field. Cobalt has three unpaired electrons, but it's kind of difficult to get a bunch of cobalt atoms to agree to permanently point in the same direction. That's where samarium comes in. Samarium atoms can slide in between cobalt atoms and get them to form a much more orderly structure. That results in a permanent, and powerful magnet. Iron has the strongest magnetic behavior of any element on the periodic table, and Sagawa thought neodymium could do for iron what samarium does for cobalt. Easier said than done, though. That endeavor kept him toiling in the lab late into the night for years, even when he had a newborn baby at home. His colleagues lost faith. At a conference Sagawa attended in 1978, one of the leading researchers in the field outright said that such an iron rare earth magnet was impossible to create. Iron atoms pack together too tightly, he explained, for a suitable crystal structure to ever form. Sometimes a little rejection can be highly motivating. Sagawa became more determined than ever to do that which had been called impossible. He took away a pretty good idea from that talk, too. Iron atoms do pack together too tightly. But maybe he could introduce a little space by wedging a smaller atom in between them. After some further experimentation, it seemed that boron would fit the bill nicely. Thus was born the nib, the neodymium-iron-boron permanent magnet, more powerful and more popular than any that had come before. Sagawa joined the ranks of those scientists who accomplished something that experts deemed impossible, and hopefully got to spend a little more time 
with his family. There are less obvious opportunities for acquiring Element 60. It's distributed so widely across the planet that you could successfully search for it at the bottom of the ocean. And you wouldn't be alone. We've discussed radiometric dating before, particularly with carbon. When investigating something that's been dead for a very long time, compare the sample's radioactive carbon-14 content to the amount of its decay product, carbon-12, and you can get a good idea of when the something died. Carbon is especially suited to this procedure because anything that's ever been alive contains a whole lot of carbon. That's really valuable for the archaeologists and biologists, but not so great for the geologists. The problem is, stuff that's alive tends to move around. It moves around a lot, in fact, and at a rather brisk pace, at least compared to the speed of tectonic plates. Along those lines, carbon also decays far too quickly, on the order of thousands of years. It's useless for a geologist. The lanthanides, however, have almost no known roles in biology, so they tend to stay wherever the mountains move them. In particular, Samarium-147 decays into Neodymium-143 with a nice, leisurely half-life around 100 billion years. The geologist appreciates this reliable tool for determining the age of rocks and meteorites, and studying the distribution of these elements along the ocean floor can reveal the patterns of ocean currents from ages past. Before neodymium became so commonplace in magnets, it didn't have much use except as a component of artisanal glassware. Integrating a small amount within the glass will lend it a soft, and strange pink color. It's not the hue of the pink that's so strange, but rather the fact that when brought out of the sunlight and placed beneath fluorescent lamps, it gives way to an icy blue. The material was quite trendy in the 1930s when it was sold under whimsical names like Alexandrite, Heatherbloom, Twilight, and Wisteria Glass. Of course, there's nothing wrong with stocking your own periodic table with the classic magnet. They are certainly easier to acquire than rare specimens of antique glass. In fact, if you're using headphones to listen to this podcast, you probably already have a little neodymium in your ear. As this program's host, I'm grateful that you do. But as Dr. Reardon would surely warn, please keep it far away from your nose and mouth. Thanks for listening to the Episodic Table of Elements. Music is by Kai Engel. To learn why the Marx Brothers hated neodymium, visit episodictable.com slash nd. Next time, we'll steal Prometheum from Mount Olympus. Until then, this is T.R. Appleton reminding you that everyone laughed at the time, 
but Shaggy Too Dope and Violent J were actually asking a pretty profound question. 